This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Aveta. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you so much for joining us today for a conversation about the contingent workforce. Uh, we're going to be talking about, you know, some of the safety and health challenges, you know, associated with the contingent workforce and how you can go about addressing those challenges. And uh, joining me today to share his insights about that is Scott DeBow. Scott is a certified safety professional, associate in risk management, and principal of health, safety, and environmental for Aveta. He is also the author of the recently published ASSP publication, Safety Management Systems in a Joint Employer Environment. Scott, welcome. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thank you so much for uh, for being here. Um, I'm excited about our conversation. Same here. Let's uh, let's dive in. So we're, we're talking about the contingent workforce. So I thought we'd kind of start by giving listeners kind of a better a better idea of of what that is. Kind of talk about what the contingent workforce is and why companies may rely on contract and temporary workers. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a wise place to start. A good place to start. What 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 do we mean when we say contingent labor? So honestly, we we mean anything that's that's really a non traditional employment setting. So if we think about uh, think about your company, think about companies uh, that you work with, you know, at, at some point, part of their labor strategy or, or uh, business strategy to, to determine how do we, how do we do things like uh, repair our facility, maintain and repair our dock doors, repair our refrigerators that keep our food cold, maintain our trucks, we, you know, the option is either we do that ourselves or perhaps we uh, we work with specialists in the field, which, which we would think of like contractors in this case that that are highly specialized, experts at what they do. And, you know, many times it's a better business decision to say, look, we uh, we maintain and, and certify and train our own in-house staff to do this, or it may be a better idea to partner with those that do it the best. And uh, in that case, like I said, it'd be contract, contract labor. Um, but then we have the labor equation, the labor strategy. Often we need help with, uh, you know, in a, a very fluctuating environment where business is ramped up or ramps down, you know, the business environment changes and fluctuates, and and we need to we need to stand up a workforce quickly, uh, or 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 the opposite, right? Um, we need to have flexibility in our labor strategy, and this would be more like the temporary labor, the the staffing agency approach, where again the option is. We can uh, we can manage this internally, stand up our own HR and recruiter uh, recruiter workforce internally, and and bring these folks in ourselves, and and bring them in when we ramp up, and uh, change it when when we ramp down, or we partner with experts in the industry that do that, which would be your staffing equation. So we have the need to to care for our. Uh, our work and to manage our work environment from the the structural things and the the things that we um, depend on to do our work, as well as the people to to actually do the work. So it's it's twofold. So when we think of contingent labor, uh, it covers both of it would cover both of those. Um, uh, I think pretty effectively. And and so at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to uh, who who are the people in our our supply chain or in our business that we depend on in order to accomplish work. 
And uh, I would I would pull in a, a thread from ISO 45001 and and even Z10 here, where it's like, you know, specifically expanding the changing the role from employee to worker and defining worker in this case to include contractors, to include consideration and inclusion for temporary workers. And so we have a health and safety management system approach that's inclusive and uh, and is is aware of the unique risks and need for different communications to to address you know both sides whether it's contractor or staffing right and that leads uh, perfectly into my next question it, th there's been you know a, a rise in you know companies relying on a contingent workforce temporary workers and uh contractors what are some of the main drivers behind that Right. And so we touched on one of the things is like the, the need to specialize. And, and so if I own a business and say transportation, logistics, whatever it might be, what am I really good at? I'm good at transportation, logistics, you know, 3PL or, or uh, manufacturing, you know, my product. That's what I'm an expert at, you, you know, and then along the periphery, what, what I'm not such an expert at is like the, the air conditioning units up on my roof, right? Do uh, do I want my facilities management and maintenance team also handling those types of things, or or would I rather uh, keep my maintenance crew on point, um, paying attention to the machine guarding, the preventive maintenance, uh, you know, all of the things that go with keeping the core of our business moving forward, um, and so the need to you know, focus in, on our specialty on what we do. Uh, but partnering with those that are specialists at, at maintaining that HVAC unit up on my roof. That allows a focus on, hey, this is what I'm good at. This is why we're in business. And we partner with those that are good at, at HVACs and uh, are good at plumbing or good at and these other things. And so, so part of that is like that model seems to be increasing because one, it can be very effective, right? It can be very, very effective. It's, it's, it can be a good business model. We need to be aware of how risk is easily transferred knowingly and unknowingly in these models, but it can be a very effective business model in, toward, in terms of letting businesses focus on their core, what they're good at, so that we achieve better outcomes together. And, and so this model, as it grows, it kind of feeds this interdependency for us to work with the right partners to be able to see who these partners are in our business systems and to stay connected around kind of a uniform approach to safety management uh, and to be aware of how these risks are, uh, are multiplied and managed. So so in answer to your question, it, it's growing because it, it can be a good business model. And I think it's growing because there's there's other forces at work in the world. And, and I won't go into uh, those things that involve cost or where do we uh, where do we uh, uh, get a, a less expensive this or a, a less expensive that. Um, but it just falls a kind of a decentralized approach sometimes in terms of how we do business. And so that broadens the structure. And um, I saw something recently, just since 2019, the ratio between traditional workers and contractors and staffing agencies in the same work environment, the, the ratio has been changing, which means that the ratio is like there's there's becoming there's fewer traditionally employed workers or there's more contingent labor. There's more contractors. There's more staffing agencies alongside these traditionally employed workers in the same work environment. Therefore, the discussion at hand, how do we achieve the same? Everybody wants safety, right? We all want the same thing. It's the moral imperative. It's good for you. It's good for me. Uh, but when we have a more of a decentralized approach, we, we have two or more management systems that really need to run parallel. They need to be 
they need to have strong coupling points around, you know, from where we start work, we, we do our contract and our pre-qualifications and our due diligence to where work begins and how we communicate, especially when things change, when risks change. And then, and then how do we evaluate work once it's completed? Because we need to have some model of organizational learning that applies together. Because guess what? We're doing the work together. Guess what? We're in the same work environments. I'm next to you. I may be a contractor or staffing, but you're a traditionally employed worker. We, re we report to different bosses, but we're, the way I work and the way I'm managed and the way my company thinks about safety will impact your culture, your work environment, your physical uh, risks and how they're managed or multiplied. So it's really important that as we see an increasing need and dependency on, on contractor, on staffing and and you know, the contingent labor model, it's very, very important that I think we raise the bar on how we do safety together. Well put. And, and, and on that note, you, you talk about, you know, improving risk management, getting, getting on a path to continuous improvement. You know, what are some of the challenges you're seeing to, to getting there when it comes to, you know, improving safety performance and contractor and temporary worker safety management? Well, <laughs> This may take the entire rest of the program, but let's let's let me try to keep it simple uh, and focus on a maybe maybe two areas. One, I th I think that we are in a I don't know we're we're in a perhaps a posture of uh, you know this kind of the status quo. It's like you know we how do we do things when it comes to these arrangements? What's our understanding of risk and and where does the relationship really start? And so you know I would think that. I would say that I think the bar has been set a little bit low in terms of, of how we think about risk in these business environments. And so, you know, whoever started this arrangement, you know, is before you and I got here, but, um, you know, I, I don't think these are bad people, perhaps, but I think it really starts in like the, the corporate, uh, the corporate world, right, where we have risk managers, we have insurance managers, we have claims management, we have uh, legal, and we have contract, and we have HR, and and within these worlds, these corporate worlds, we have uh, we start to address really important things that are at the corporate end of the business model, and so we look at contract and insurance, and making sure that if we if we depend on another company to come in and and you know do this work or or work with us, what do we need, and we, we need to have insurance levels at, at such a uh, you know. Uh, such and such a setting or a, a certain level. So at the corporate end of the understanding, all of this work is important and should be there, should be in place, but it begins to get a little bit murky because one at the corporate end, that's where the communications around safety tend to begin. They're very formal, they're very fixed. And there's there's almost this assumption that because we've addressed who's doing PPE, Who's, who's verifying training or certifications or that these are done? We've done our due diligence. We've checked our corporate boxes. And the assumption is that work is going to go well because we did these things at the corporate end, at the beginning of the relationship. And there's really, we've been lacking a model that helps follow the life cycle of work that helps say, okay, well, look, we have, we have our due diligence in place. Work is going to begin here. Uh, we need to make sure we have orientation and induction and training and all those things, but um, there's there's very little emphasis, or until recently, I, I would say there's been very little emphasis on. Well, once 
you know, how does our procurement process evaluate the risk assessment capabilities of a staffing provider? Are, are they able to contribute to identifying risk and communicate to us uh, in terms, how do we need to raise our game and expectations for those that work with us in terms of what we need to, to manage safety effectively? And so on one hand, the bar has been set a little bit low. We've been operating on assumption that because we identify good procurement and corporate practices at the beginning of the relationship, that those translate into safe outcomes, and, and they, they really don't. So um, I, I would say that's the first, uh, that's one of the challenges, and I think it's a growth area. Um, we need procurement. We need risk. We need insurance. Um, but I think this is a great area for safety to, to become more involved in helping our business leaders think about how do we integrate and navigate meaningful metrics or meaningful methods? So how do we monitor and assess risk along the life cycle of work? That's what we need. How do we make sure that those we depend on to accomplish good work, be it staffing, be it contractor, or a contractor that's doing work, and there's a, there's a new risk at his client's site and there's no one around to report it to. Well, that, that really shouldn't happen. So it's, it, we need this two-way, we need this alignment and these coupling points between, between the, the client that's doing the hiring, the host employer, and the, you know, the, the staffing providers, the, the contractors that are doing the work. And you know, there's models that, that identify that. The second area I'd, I'd point to in terms of what are the challenges is that we've, um, what have we been relying on that tells us things are good? There's two good articles in the May Professional Safety Journal. So there's more than two. So it's it's hard to talk about because mine is one of them. It's just chapter one of, of my book. It's the worth reading section. But the other one that I would say, I would suggest if you can only read uh, one of these two articles, go read uh, the one on TRIR, Total Recordable Incident Rate and Data Management by, by Dr. Hollowell. And I think doc, Dr. Urkel, if I, if I pronounced her name correctly, but the, the article is incredible because it identifies, look, the things we've depending on that tell us, you know, good or not good, safe or unsafe, were, were developed you know, a long time ago, uh, were developed with the idea of how do we develop an industry determination of, of performance around these things, but, but it's become to the point where it's been applied to individual contractors in a way that, you know, we think there's, we've learned a lot more than we did 20, 30 years ago. And this, uh, the point is around how are we, what's our relationship with data has been maturing. Our relationship with safety data has been maturing. And, and often, I think us as safety professionals, we're sometimes ahead of this new knowledge than our, our leaders are, our C-suite. Um, leaders are. So I had a conversation not too long ago with the chief, our chief financial officer um, when we were talking about frequency and severity and how we, we used to focus on frequency, hoping it would drive down our severity. And that that's really not the best strategy. We know that not to be the best strategy because there's different types of risk. And, and she stopped me right there and says, hey, say that again, driving down our frequency, focusing on the small to minor events doesn't really correlate well to driving down our severity. That's completely new. And so there's, there's opportunity for us to understand that, look, our relationship with data in terms of what tells us is good is, is more dependent on, um, let's say from a lagging standpoint, 
we know severity-based lagging metrics have more context in terms of you know, and a, a company's ability to, to manage risk, uh, to manage high, ener high energy you know, exposures, to you know, have, uh, you have the ability to manage the risk at your site, right? If you bring me on as a contractor, right? So the severity-based lagging metrics, I'm careful not to use the term predictive qualities, but they have, there's more, like I said, context around those, and those are more meaningful. But what we're really needing to get to is, is uh, I mentioned monitoring and assessing risk along the life cycle of work. That's what we really need to know. And so as we plan work to happen, right, as we as we begin to mature from the kind of deleverage or um, deleverage our dependence on total recordable incident rate or frequency rates to say good or not good, safe or not safe, we need to bring others along. We need to bring our leaders along. We need to bring our, our procurement teams and our IT and data teams and risk managers and insurance as like, okay, here's here's a fixed point in time where this shows a certain amount of you know performance around how many injuries were experienced in this period of time. But what we need, what we really need is is to get better insights into someone's capacity to manage risk, right? Can they show examples of of you know, risk assessments, of, of corrective actions, of, of how they've uh, managed a change process. And so we're really speaking to elements, well-known elements within a safety management system, but we need these elements of safety management system along, you know, compatible and along two management teams, right? The, the host employer, the client, and the contractor, the staffing agency, that's what we need to be able to build. That's where new understanding is. That's where we might take old knowledge, right? The, the lagging indicator data. And I, I know I have many friends in the insurance industry and claims and risk manage that entire careers were built on managing lagging metrics and doing well. So when they hear me say deleverage or, or emphasize that a little bit less, I'm not saying those things need to go away. I'm saying we need, we need to make sure we have clean data that we can use lagging metrics, uh, such as the severity-based metrics, to build things like precursors. What were the precursors to this event? We can see that more clearly around the severity data. And so, and here's the things we go do. If this is a precursor to this type of severe event, this is the type of thing, this is the type of control we need to ensure is in place. We need to monitor, we need to assess. And then we need to get together and at some defined cadence, just say what work happened within our system, how many of this type of high energy or, or, uh, or risk, uh, high level risk activities were completed? How did it go? And we need, I think we should start with uh, uh, the people closest to the work, the contractors, uh, for example, because often contractors are asked, hey, work, uh, work is done and here's my feedback to you. You were on time, quality seemed to be pretty good. You know, here's my, here's my rating of me to you. What I need is from the contractor to say, all right, so um, from our perspective, you know, we understood that the scope of work included you securing this work area with fencing so we didn't have your employees wandering through this controlled work area, but the fencing was only two feet tall and people were just stepping over it. And we tried to manage that best we could. No one was hurt or <laughs> no one was hurt, or we asked you to, to put up higher fencing and it delayed the project. You know, the review should happen at the site level, but this type of review and communication needs to be channeled for corporate review as well at some type of established cadence, because this is where organizational learning 
primes, you know, our next work planning strategies, right? Well, we didn't know that. Oh my gosh, you know what? All of our sites need to know not to use two foot fencing. They need to use six foot fencing, right? You know, something like that where that doesn't happen again, or we factor this new knowledge into our future planning. And, and that's where we're trying to get to. So, so when we say challenges, there's challenges, sure there's challenges. And I don't think those are all of them. Don't want to be depressing in the sense of, oh, I, I want what I'm really excited about. Well, what I'm really excited about is, and I think I was talking to a friend of mine, I think this is perhaps one of the most exciting times in my career when I think about what's happening in the safety community is the opportunity for us to really improve and make meaningful impact, to move the needle, to at some point see that 5,000 average you know, fatality rate in the U.S. start to go down. These are the things that we're talking about uh, being able to do. When you when you think about you know these challenges you you just mentioned, like you know, what are some things businesses can do you know to best mitigate those challenges in order to you know continually improve their safety and health management? Sure. So I th I think one area is you know we hinted at it a little bit in terms of safety management systems, and we 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 hinted at you know there there should be a, a growing or a maturing awareness of however good we are at our pre qualification stage or or due diligence stage, things change. Risk fluctuates very, very quickly, uh, one day to the next. And because you and I are good and documents are signed and this and that, but I show up at your site next week or next month, whenever work happens, that's where work is best made. That's where risk is best understood, our best opportunity to, to see and to manage change. And so how are we getting there? And so so, you know, when we look at models from, I would say uh, in, what employers should be doing is what model are we drawing from? W what is our approach? What's our current state approach to managing risk along the life cycle of work uh, in our joint employer environment, right? Whether, you know, talking contingent labor, whether that the, we want to focus on contractors, maybe we don't have staffing employers in our, in our uh, uh, work system. Maybe we do. But what is our current model we use to understand risk through the life cycle of work? And I would encourage, and part of what my book does, it gives some visual models because I know people, I'm very visual, others are too, is like, how do we extend our understanding of where, you know, the type of risk we need to manage at the beginning of a relationship? And then what are the questions we ask through senior operations down to the operational level? Because often, you know, one of the one of the things I say is is whatever you and I agree to at the corporate end, the operation teams inherit, right? They inherit what whatever we did good or whatever we did not good, and and but we expect them to deliver on the safety equation, right? So it comes down to the resources and the boundaries, kind of the how how are our operation teams resourced to manage risk, and so you know the safe we don't have to go develop anything new here. I think Z10, I think 45,001. I think, you know, I've applied these uh, systems and these models within from my own practice and my own uh, my own experience. And they're, they're successful. Um, you know, it doesn't solve all of our problems. I wish we could say we had zero you know, serious injuries, or but um, I could say we absolutely improved. Absolutely helped elevate understanding of risk and communications. We better, we were better able to discern when are we likely to have a gap in serious communications? And, and we would often look at non-safety things, right? So, so sometimes we think, well, 
the nuts and bolts of safety, you have to make your anchor point and your fall protection equipment. And that's important. But what about leadership turnover? And so a safety management systems approach, and we, we define our roles and responsibilities and our scope and our boundaries and who is in our work system. How do we plan for what work is happening and what's needed? We begin to, it's really a process of discovery that's most exciting to me because we begin to learn as like, you know, looking back the precursor events to certain you know, catastrophic events that I've, I've been a part of investigating uh, consistently show, look, when when a significant leader was on PTO or um, had turned over, there was a gap in a significant leader role. And that shows, shows a number of problems. What resources do we need to have to be aware of that, first of all? And what resources do we need to be prepared to kind of intervene and fill that gap and keep critical safety knowledge and communications flowing? And so, and so I'd say, look, evaluate where you are, consider what new safety management systems are. And, and I think, I believe my book would be helpful for, for those folks that are considering this. Uh, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, are you able to answer the question, look, how do you know, where are you good and, and where are you not good, <laughs> right? Are you, depending at, look, if your, your injury experience has been decreased or, or not, you know, um, how do you know you're, how do you know you're good or how do you know you're lucky? And, and what the other opportunity here, Scott, is if you are the hiring employer, you're the host employer, you need contractors, you need staffing agencies, understand the power of your voice in terms of expectations, because this is also a very sales driven business model, you know? So I, I want, I need to earn your business. There's RFPs, there's uh, there's competition, there's very, very stiff competition. So if I'm able to, uh, you know, underbid my competitor and win the business, that's, that's great, right? Your procurement team says, win, check that box, cheaper, you know, same type of uh, labor provider, but but less expensive. That's a win. Well, how do we know we just didn't remove the capacity for me to be able to actually stay on top of the leadership element needed to manage work well, to manage risk uh, effectively? And so, so we need to understand, look, there's a number of things here. The safety management system, I think the capacity model, understanding work from a capacity, what's needed for work to to consistently be done well and focus on that together, your voice and, and sending that expectation and that that uh, this is how we work raises, there's like an awareness on my end as a provider. It's like, whoa, I don't know anything about capacity modeling. It's like, we should probably go learn. Customers are asking that. Oh, and it's good for me too. So part of, part of you just raising your expectation raises my expectation because I'm in business to make you the customer happy, but it's also we we really do need to to be on kind of a the similar journey, similar path together. So I think that's uh, important for businesses to understand current state. How are they setting expectations for themselves, but also for those within their supply chain? And those in their supply chain, what are they contributing? What do we expect to see? Right? We need more than just um, you know. You know, if there was a significant risk that you recognize, you know, don't keep that to yourself. We should know that. So there's there's a real mutual kind of interdependency in these business relationships that can and should be leveraged for the good. You said it again there. I think a common thread throughout all this are those those relationships. You think about all the, all the different relationships in, involved with the contingent workforce. What are some things that 
employers should be looking for in, you know, contractors, temporary workers, firms to make sure, you know, they have the the right people in place to do the job, do it safely, you know, and get get your company on a path to improving their safety and health management system. Sure. And well, I think, you know, where where does the relationship typically start? It starts in how do we evaluate a contractor or a staffing agency, the questions we typically ask. And so if, look, if you just ask me for my safety program, even if I don't have a good one or I don't have one, I can go buy one pretty easily or fill out a boilerplate and send it your way. And maybe it has buzzy new trend words and keywords, but is really disconnected from how I actually practice safety. And so, you know, it's part of Part of uh, my existence, part of my mission, my personal mission is to push this capability and this awareness into uh, this space where, where how are we better evaluating safety uh, you know, among these, these different stakeholders, right? The host employers, the, the contractors, the staffing providers, because we need more than just a, a written policy. We need a good policy. We need evidence of these things being done. And so, so I think that's that's where we introduce new ideas into the procurement equation or the procurement strategies and, and say, how do we find out about someone has a written program talking about corrective actions? Describe to us or, or share with us your corrective actions. How do you manage risk? And this is a process of discovery, right? It, it should be both, you know, I'm sure you could, I can request a document via email or a system and you can provide one, but it should also involve you and I talking and evaluating. Tell me about you know, how your corrective action works. And have you ever had a corrective action you helped a, a customer solve? Because sometimes those corrective actions are the source of them really aren't at the contractor or staffing provider. They're at the host employer level. So I, I think, look, where the process starts, think of the prevention through design model. And again, there's there's another image of this or visual in my in my book that talks about what are the things we should be asking from a prevention through design, when we when we emphasize prevention earlier in the model and the in the process, it helps translate better resources downstream to those operational teams inheriting what we started. Uh, and so, yeah, so there's the beginning of the process. I think it's important, Scott, that we understand the human factors element here. So when we talk about human factors, and we're talking about you know what I describe in, in um, my book about you know, joint employer safety is that, look, we have these risk multipliers. And so you know, what, what research has shown, when we look at what like the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health and their, the NORA work groups, National Occupational Research Agenda groups, and, and, and others in this industry have researched is that when you take a traditionally employed group of workers or worker alongside, say, a, a temporary worker, right, doing the same type of task, same environment, you know, the understanding of, of risk perception is different. So traditionally employed worker better understands how can I get hurt doing this job? Non-traditional employees have a lower understanding, a lower perception of how can I get hurt doing this job? Same task, same, same job, same work environment, has nothing to do, you know, necessarily with experience or, or intelligence or anything. It's just I'm in a I'm in an arrangement where the current model accelerates me through the onboarding system to get my boots on the floor so I can start producing work, right? And so it's an accelerated lean. I don't know if lean's the right word here, but it, it it's just it's very it's very quick 
And so risk is multiplied in a couple of different ways with our, our staffing community, with, with I would say even, even the contractor community, um, because risk perceptions diminished, right? We have a lower perception of how can I get hurt doing this? And then if we think about, you know, what's alongside that risk tolerance, right? So what might I be willing to do in order to keep this temporary job? Or many, uh, many workers, they're working several part-time or temporary positions. Um, and, and there's an uncertainty factor uh, in terms of, well, I work tomorrow and man, I, I need medicine. I need food on the table for my family. And so when we add the element of uncertainty into kind of the human factors equation, uh, some would even say this is the, the psychosocial risk. And I, I agree with that aspect of it. But we're, we're adding an element, we're multiplying an element of uncertainty where yeah, I'll, I'll kind of do whatever he asked me to do as long as I can continue to work here. Right? And I don't understand the risk quite as well, not because of me, but because of the kind of the system I'm in. So we, we need systems around this that, that teach our managers and operations leaders about the importance of like, like how do we need to communicate uh, and how do we need to manage the workforce when we have non-traditional workers in our workforce? And so and the, third, the third risk multiplier is upward communications. Right. So I'm, I'm less likely to simply raise my hand and say, hey, if someone asks me to go climb on a roof, uh, m- my job is to, uh, you know, fold and pack these boxes or to assemble these you know, small electrical components. And a supervisor over here is is short on workers. But, hey, uh, that guy looks like, you know, maybe they look at me. I, I could probably get him to, to come help me for 15 minutes and climb up here on the roof. Well, the supervisors that often ask that to happen aren't aware of how quickly risk changes in this environment. And, you know, what I should say is, look, I'm not trained to do that. My company said I'm only supposed to be able to do these tasks. They're, they're not likely to do that because of fear of repercussions. It's hard to say no. So if we want to add some additional thought around you know, from a hot perspective, right? We think of you know, the systems we're in that, that drive outcomes, the context of the situation that drives the outcomes. We're, the context of the situation is everyone's just trying to solve problems together. We're not really well connected to the, the multipliers of risk that, you know, that are magnified and multiplied. And then we come away with outcomes we're not happy with, right? Because um, you know, temporary workers, can, they're, they're at more significant risk. Contract temporary workers are, are known to experience risk at greater levels. So, so we need to we need to inject, we need to design and build this awareness into corporate leadership and understanding. We need to equip and enable our operations teams that we expect to manage work to know what a significant risk it is and, and design work around, hey, if if you if you want to pull a temporary worker or a, a contractor just to climb up a little bit higher or change that light bulb too, you need to understand that's that's management of change right there. So our approach to management of change is based on a risk-based understanding. We would not expect a a manager in the heat of the moment trying to solve problems to understand that unless we trained them and taught them to understand. So, So these are like the human factors elements. We need to have a systems understanding of, of how these things go and um, how these communications work, but we need to have, we need to understand risk in the shared work environment, in this joint employer environment. And we need to be able to teach, you know, wh- where does a manager plug in communications to say, hey, man, I, 
I'm short three people. I really, really need help in that moment. If that manager's not provided a conduit to raise their hand, solve a problem, they're going to solve the problem in the way they best know it, just like I would. So, so when we think, we think systems and design, we think uh, safety management systems and elements of, of how are we meaningfully connecting risk-based understanding, management of change, and communications between parties that depend on each other for good work to happen, right? And so, so yeah, that's another part. That was an important part of my book to understand or to help others understand the risk multipliers aspect, the human factors uh, elements alongside the safety management system. It's like, well, well, what type of communications should we be focusing on at each stage of the work, right? So that's that. And we haven't even gotten to the point where what do we have to learn from the workforce themselves, but perhaps the most important area uh, ever, right? In terms of who knows how things are really done. Another big piece of this too that you touched on earlier is data and the role data plays in this process. And I mean, you know, companies have you know so much data available uh, to them. So you know, how would you encourage them to utilize that, you know, to improve safety among contract and temporary workers? And, you know, what are some of the emerging capabilities companies can use to measure safety and manage risks? Sure. So, well, I think internally, and so I, it's kind of my own principle I operate is, is kind of the log in my own eye principle. And that includes my understanding and use of data as well as our teams. So it's easy to expect better or more from others, but but really starting with how clean is our data? The data we have to understand how many events happened, you know, it could be, you know, how disciplined is our, our claims management process to collect the data and even recognize high energy exposures, even when someone's reporting an ankle sprain, right? So how disciplined is the process to receive the data? Call it intake, data intake. Clean data is really important. We mentioned earlier, our, our role in our relationship with safety data is, has been maturing. So when we think of the intake of safety data, how clean is it? How disciplined is it? Because even though it's it's lagging, and I know we talk about lagging indicators and some of the challenges with that, but it's still a viable source of intel. But what, what happened? What do we have to learn from this? What are the questions we might ask? Oh, you sprained your ankle and you're stepping off, you're stepping off this, you know, this type of event. And, and just teaching our organizations, even if they're not on the safety front line or operational front line, to, to be connected with the things that hurt people the most. So potentially lethal energy. Uh, I, I think starting with the log in our own eye, thinking about our intake, how is our internal intake system tuned to capture the most important information? So this can be a real challenge. Um, so I, I have experience working with an organization that the view was having this intake portion of the data from the standpoint of insurance, from the standpoint of, you know, potentially is like, hey, if we, we get information a certain way, that maybe that shows ownership of uh, someone else is responsible for this, right? It's it's not on our insurance or claims data necessarily. And, and so, so it kind of skews our understanding of what really happened, but we can clean that up. We, can, we, we need clean data and we especially need to tune it with the understanding of a lot of times we, we get good information about small things that happened that could have been very easily a very different story, a traumatic amputation or fatality or otherwise. So, so I think we start with the log in our own eye. And then I think in terms of using data to evaluate, uh, how do we better evaluate what others have been experiencing. You know, I mentioned the, the article 
on total recordable incident rate, I think our industry has an opportunity. We have, we have a challenge, but we really have a big opportunity. So it could be total recordable incident rate or experience modifiers, uh, you know, whatever data point we're looking at in that moment in time, you know, I think the safety profession is is growing past that. I don't know how well our our leaders, our C-suite leaders understand understand this type of thing. And so if we say, if, if not total recordable incident rate, or if not this, this lagging metric, well, then what should it be? And so we should look at, well, that's, that's right. What, what should these things be? What, what are the different, how do we get better context around this, this data equation? Because, because look, I would be, I really would rather know if I'm evaluating three contractors or three companies one of them reports four fatalities, one of them reports three, and one of them reports two. But, you know, the, uh, the one that has four fatalities, you know, maybe it's from the same event that was completely outside of the control. So one event, four fatalities, completely outside of the control of that, that contractor be able to manage. The other two contractors, multiple events, all of them with you know, the complete ability to manage those controls effectively to prevent a fall from heights or pre prevent a trench collapse. Who, who do I want to work with? It's not necessarily just based on, on a reported number. And if we, if we, if we keep it reduced to just reporting a number, there's games that we want to play. And again, let's, let's talk about what are we likely to do in a system where, uh, uh, from a, a hot perspective, right? If, uh, if if accounting systems in this in this example drive behaviors and i'm likely to get business or not get business based on what number i report and my job depends on that what am i likely to do what what so if we reduce it just to a number i don't i don't know how that that can really be a, a good system for our future but if we depend on the contacts and we begin to change the narrative from how many how many uh, lacerations or stitches happened that were produced a recordable number to what's the context around controlling the type of energy that kills people or forever change life. And that's part of that is like a problem for companies working on. That's an industry problem. How do we begin to solve that as an industry? And again, I would, I would strongly encourage reading the article uh, on TRIR in, in the May journal of PSJ. So that's exactly where I would say go, right? Way better, they'll do a, a way better job than I think I could do at service here. But but I'm all on board thinking in the train because it points to where I think better is. Absolutely. Definitely encourage folks to take a, take a look at uh, that article in the May issue of PSJ and you know, think about how they can go beyond TRIR to, and, uh, you know, establishing metrics for their, their uh, organization to get them on that path to continuous improvement. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? I would. And if I could just say you know, the, the environment now, when we're evaluating contractors, we're evaluating uh, staffing firms, we're evaluating contingent labor. It's very transactional. It's very formal. It's very transactional. And, you know, sometimes things in life just are transactional, but hey, there's the human factor here. And, and there is the opportunity to set new expectations from the right providers being in our system. And so quick, quick example is the need for businesses to rely on the, the specialist. Let's just use staffing in this case. So as part of a group that, that wanted to do, wanted to change the schedule, 
they wanted to change their production schedule. They wanted to, to make changes in, in how they're producing and what time they start and when time. Well, what they don't really know and aren't really in tune with in their production thinking is, well, they don't really know the demographics like the staffing company does. They, they don't know. It's like bus schedules, school schedules, you know, where people live and what they do and how they commute to and from work. And sometimes it's Sometimes it's their own vehicles, public transportation or, or ride sharing, or they're they're jumping in the same vehicle with each other. So what does, you know, if, and if you're in an area of the world or the country where that's a really big deal, look, your, your staffing provider or your, your contractors, they have business knowledge that really benefit business decisions. And, and that is the thinking, I think, that will help raise expectations for who's in our supply chain. And how do we begin to raise the bar in, in terms of who do we want in our supply chain? What type of things should they be able to give us other than, you know, a, a, a pre-printed you know, safety, safety document, a couple of injuries that we had this year and last year. Um, but the expectation is how are we, how are we improving business through monitoring and assessing risk effectively together? And, you know, if, you know, be honest about your capabilities, but be honest we need to be improving our capabilities in this area uh, alongside one another rather than an annual update or rather than, um, hey, your TRI rate is too high or, or just right. Uh, we do need to get beyond that. So the opportunity I think is is exciting in front of us, uh, but a big part of that is how are we solving these big industry problems together and setting new expectations for for monitoring risk alongside the continuum of work. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end on because to your point, yeah, it takes everybody working together, you know, the safety side procurement, the business, like it's, it's a, a huge collaborative effort, you know, to get your organization uh, where it needs to go. Thank you so much again for coming on, Scott, giving our listeners uh, so many really great things to think about. So I uh, really appreciate uh, you sharing your perspective. Hey, thanks for having me on again, Scott. Joy to be here and thank you to the ASSP. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.